morning to Isaiah chapter 58. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just get their attention by waving at them. They'll get a Bible into your hands and it'll be marked to our passage this morning. So you can turn right there and then not only listen to the Word of God as it's taught, but see it with your own uh, eyes. Isaiah chapter 58, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah writes, by the Spirit of God, God declaring through him, Cry aloud. Spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my name, my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit your labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this, is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not, is this not the fast I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with hungry and that, uh, with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go, bo- go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then... Your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness will be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places You shall raise up the foundation of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and so often as we consider it in this context, we think about how it is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And we thank you that we're able to build our lives, our eternities, the day in and day out of our lives on something that is far sure and far stronger than anything that appears solid in this life. And we thank you for your word. We want you to know 
that we count it a privilege to be able to turn to it, to be able to understand it on any level. We realize that's the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would open up this beautiful passage to us today and then teach us about what it has to do with our relationship with you and our walk with your, you, your call upon each one of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to address the subject of uh, fasting. And um, it's an interesting kind of subject to address on a Sunday morning or address really any kind of time. And yet I feel strongly the Lord's kind of drawn my heart there. I don't in the course of the week when we're looking at the passages that we're going to go through on Sunday night, four chapters tonight verses 57 through 60. And all right, Lord, what do you want to speak to us out of these uh, chapters? We don't look and say, well, what will preach well? Or what is something that I is of extraordinary interest to me? It's all what, Lord, considerable time given each week to what do you want to bring before us this Sunday? It's your church. We're your people. And so would you show me? And I think we've been directed here today. Now, fasting can seem like an odd subject, I think, for a Sunday morning Bible study to uh, some. And I think that some people might even protest. Why in the world would we be studying something that virtually no one knows anything about, virtually no one practices, and virtually no one seems to care about at, at all? And, of course, a question like that, even uh, not put as strongly as that uh, might be put, is precisely why it's important that we study the subject and uh, because I think we'll find out this morning just how, uh, be surprised at just how important it is and really how vital a practice it can be at strategic times in our Christian life. There's a pastor by the name of Timothy Keller and he pastors in New York City. A number of years ago he wrote a book entitled The Reason for God. And it is uh, the subtitle of that same book is Belief in an Age of Skepticism, probably. Quite a few of you have read that book. I would highly recommend it to anyone who has any interest in apologetics or certainly if you're a student, whether in high school or whether in college. But really, it's beneficial to anyone. And in the book, among many other things, he confronts the common and erroneous perception of Christianity uh, today in the United States as being the enemy of pluralism and the enemy of multiculturalism and uh, the fact that uh, the perception today is that secularism is the hero and the defender and the single great champion of pluralism and multiculturalism in the world today and then rejecting Christianity on the basis of that wrong perception. And he writes in this regard, and sometimes when something is read to you, uh, it's easy to kind of lose focus after three sentences, but I think it's worth the effort um, to try and get his gist in this regard. He wrote, Christianity is also reputed to be a cultural straitjacket, it allegedly forces people from diverse cultures into a single iron mold. It is seen as an enemy of pluralism and multiculturalism. 
In reality, Christianity has been more adaptive and maybe less destructive of diverse cultures than secularism and many other worldviews. The pattern of Christian expansion differs from that of every other world religion. The center and majority of Islam's population is still in the place of its origin, the Middle East. The original lands that have been the demographic centers of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Confucianism have remained so. By contrast, Christianity was first dominated by Jews and centered in Jerusalem. Later, it was dominated by Hellenists and centered in the Mediterranean. Later, the faith was received by the barbarians of northern Europe. Well, and Christianity came to be dominated by Western Europeans and then North Americans. Today, most Christians in the world live in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Christianity soon will be centered in the northern and eastern hemispheres. Two case studies are instructive. In the year 1900, Christians comprised 9% of the African population and were outnumbered by Muslims 4 to 1. Today, Christians comprise 44% of the population, and in the 1960s, passed Muslims in number. This explosive growth is now beginning in China. Christianity is growing not only among the peasantry, but also among the social and cultural establishment, including the Communist Party. At the current rate of growth, within 30 years, Christians will constitute 30% of the Chinese population of one and a half billion. Why has Christianity grown so explosively in these places? He said, African scholar uh, Lamine Sana gives a most intriguing answer. Africans, he said, had a long tradition of belief in a supernatural world of good and evil spirits. When Africans began to read the Bible in their own languages, many began to see in Christ the final solution to their own historic longings and aspirations as Africans. Uh, Sana writes, Christianity answered this historical challenge by a reorientation of the worldview. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred nor their clamor for an invincible Savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Sana argues that secularism, with all its anti-supernaturalism and individualism, is much more destructive of local cultures and Africanness than Christianity is. In the Bible, Africans read of Jesus' power over supernatural and spiritual evil and of his triumphs over it on the cross of his triumph over it on the cross when africans become christians their africanness is converted completed and resolved not replaced with europeanness or something else 
through Christianity, Africans get distance uh, enough to critique their traditions yet still inhabit them. And the point he's making is that Christianity is able to come into every culture in the world and to save and to change and to sanctify individual lives within that culture, conforming them into the image of Christ by His Holy Spirit without forcing them to abandon those portions of their culture that are not sinful. And the fact that Christianity is adaptive to culture. Yes, it conforms individual people into the image of Christ by His Holy Spirit on a spiritual level, a moral level, an emotional level, a spiritual level, a mental level, but it is not represented by one culture in the world. And thus, if you have the privilege of traveling the world and going to houses of worship around the world, you will discover that the expression of Christianity in worship is different in terms of personality and culture in China, in India, in South America, in the United States, in Russia, Mexico, and elsewhere. And each of them is okay because each of them has been affected by and is sensitive to their culture. The Apostle Paul encapsulates all of this in basically just a single line. He encapsulates this understanding and this attitude when he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this wasn't just the attitude of um, the Apostle Paul toward the Jew and Gentile world, but that was the heart of Jesus himself and the heart of the Holy Spirit operating in the Apostle Paul. Now, all of this is very wonderful, but the thing we have to be careful in, of in all of this, and I leave Pastor Keller at this point and return to our passage, the thing that we have to be careful of in all of this is that Christians in any culture in the world, and us included, that we need to be very careful to make sure that we don't wake up one day and then discover that we have a Christianity that is less like the Christianity as it's described in the Bible and more like the Christianity that is defined by our culture. And so the fact that Christianity adapts to a culture never means that Christianity is to be changed or conformed at its core by the culture. And it's important for us as Christians to realize that not only is the fullness of the Christian life as it's described in the Bible available to us, but the fullness of the description of the Christian life in the Bible is necessary uh, to us in order for us to prosper spiritually and in order for us to be who and what God wants us to be in this world and to be an influence for Him in this world. Which brings us then to the subject of fasting. By and large, fasting is a neglected part of American Christianity. It is rarely emphasized. It is rarely taught upon. It's something that kind of fanatical Christians engage in or maybe Christians in India 
or someplace like that. They might practice it. But we don't give it very serious thought, by and large, as Christians in the United States. And I think that as Christians in our American culture, we have been somewhat able to neglect the importance of fasting. We've been able to uh, neglect, I don't say completely successfully, but we've gotten away with some measure of neglect related to fasting and uh, disciplines like fasting without, you know, uh, experience the dire co- experiencing the dire consequences that someone would if they were a Christian in the Middle East or a Christian uh, in Hindu India or a non-Orthodox uh, Christian in Russia might be. And, uh, and one of the reasons that we've been able to kind of forego the emphasis upon uh, fasting in a way that the rest of the world hasn't in terms of Christians there, I think in large part is because of our Christian heritage. And we owe more to our Christian heritage than we realize. And the fact that the Bible has so long been a standard for our laws, for our morality, for our definitions of right and of wrong. And this biblical morality that is still around us as Christians in the United States and the fact of just the sheer number of Christians in this nation has provided us as Christians with a very, very favorable environment in which to practice our faith. But the world is changing. And the world is changing very, very rapidly. And the United States is changing morally and spiritually. And it's changing very, very rapidly. And so those parts of the Christian life that have been neglected uh, as a result of our American culture, those sections of the Bible, those descriptions of the Christian life that we have perhaps long read as Christians and then just disregarded because nobody's really taken this seriously in terms of my grandparents or my parents or anyone in my generation. And so, after all, how important can it be? And, uh, and I think we're in a place now where even now in the United States where... These uh, changes are occurring so rapidly that we're going to be forced to look at uh, supremely and clearly, soberly, at the description of the Christianity that is in the Bible and to realize that American Christianity is not going to be something that is going to undergird us or be strong enough to take us through the season in human history that God has called us to be a witness uh, to Him in, but we're going to need a biblical Christianity. We're going to need to avail ourselves of everything that is described and is ours uh, in Christ, and fasting is one of those things. Now, that's quite a lengthy introduction, isn't it? So now we get into the passage and, and look at it. But I think it gives us some context Uh, for what we are going to look at. So we begin by asking ourselves, what is fasting? What is it and what is it not? And the Bible speaks to both of those things. Fasting, what it is and its purpose is to voluntarily abstain from food for some period of time 
in order to then use the time that would be normally given to uh, uh, food and uh, associated with food, to then take that time and draw closer to God to seek the Lord in prayer related to some extraordinary circumstance within our life. It's interesting to stop and think about how much time is given each day to food in our lives. And there's nothing wrong with it. Um, But you think about how much time you think about what we're going to eat. What am I going to have uh, for lunch? Uh, Thinking about food, then planning meals, preparing meals, then eating the meals, cleaning up after the meals, and so forth. And so if we were to stop and look at how much of our daily lives in terms of time revolve around this preparation, the actual partaking of the food, the cleanup after and so forth, that it takes for the average person several hours each day is centered on food. And again, all of that's fine. But when a Christian fasts, they're choosing then to take those hours on a given day to seek the Lord in an extraordinary way. Um, Some people, uh, we see fasts within the Bible. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights when he began his public ministry. I think I've known two people who've done a 40 uh, day and 40 night fast. And you better know what you're doing and the Lord better tell you to do it if you're going to tackle something like that. But most fasts in the Bible are for a day. They're from sunrise to sunset. That's the description of the average kind of fast. Uh, Many people, I don't think that all fasting is limited uh, in that way. There are many people that I know who will fast for a day out of the week, or they'll fast a breakfast a week, or they'll fast a lunch a week. Something is happening in their workplace and there's some kind of a dynamic that is going on, or they long to have a greater spiritual influence in their workplace. And so every Wednesday they will forego lunch and they will give themselves to prayer and seeking the Lord that their lives would be extraordinarily influential uh, for God in that workplace. And so this kind of thing uh, goes on all of the time. Sometimes people will fast one meal uh, a uh, a, uh, on a given week, typically a kind of a lunch in order to pray for the salvation of their children or some kind of a trial that their, uh, one of their grandchildren is going through. So that's what fasting is. The Bible uh, is pretty clear also on what fasting is not. A lot of people fast for health reasons, and there is all kinds of scientific information that you can get on uh, how uh, advantageous it is health-wise to fast maybe one day a week. And so a lot of people fast. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. They're not Christians at all, but they do it for health reasons. And all of that is perfectly fine, but Without the spiritual dimension, it is not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is done supremely for spiritual reasons to further devote ourselves to prayer and seeking God over some issue 
within our lives. Additionally, the Bible makes it very clear that fasting is never to be used as a manipulation technique with God. It's not a way that we pin God in some kind of a wrestling match and now he's forced to give me what it is that I've been asking for and then fasting on top of it. And sometimes people will do that. God, I'm going to fast and I'm going to fast toward related to this situation. I want this situation to turn out this kind of a way. And uh, maybe if I do this in the situation, the Lord will have pity on me and he'll do that. Some people are even more aggressive in their fasting. They use it in order to indebt God. God, now I've done this. Now you've got to come through on this. And this is what I want uh, you to do. And the Bible teaches that uh, fasting under those motivations isn't going to do any good at all. Let me also be quick to add before we get into our next point, and that is that fasting may be something that some Christians can't do. Uh, for medical reasons or whatever it might be, God understands that in a person's life, and uh, and He knows, you know, what we're dealing with physically and all, and He'll deal with our lives in a different way. So we're talking about people who have, you know, the health and the ability to withstand a, a fast of, of some length of time. Examples of fasting just permeate the Bible. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, to be a student of the Bible is to realize fasting was something that uh, God's people have practiced since the very beginning. In the Old Testament, Moses fasted. There was a 40-day and 40-nighter there when he received the law of Moses. King David fasted. The prophet Daniel fasted. Nehemiah fasted. Ezra fasted. Uh, Queen Esther fasted. Some of the uh, many of the Old Testament prophets were told specifically uh, fasted and then called on the nation of Israel to fast. Isaiah uh, did so. Jeremiah did so. Ezekiel did so. Uh, Joel did so. And so we realize that many of the people that we respect most in the Bible, that we admire most in the Bible, that fasting was they found it to be a necessary part of their relationship with God and their Christian service. The New Testament is also full of examples of fasting in the early church, at the church in Antioch. Uh, they fasted and they prayed to know the will of God before they sent out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. And that's recorded in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 14, under the influence of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the early church fasted before they would ever ordain or appoint uh, leaders within the local church, elders and deacons. And so this wasn't a foreign activity at all in the early church. Examples of, of uh, fasting uh, fill the life of Jesus, not only his life and his teaching, as I mentioned. He began his public ministry by fasting, following his water baptism at the Jordan River, fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He instructed us as Christians, as his disciples, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, he taught us to fast as Christians. I'll read this passage to you in Matthew chapter 6. He said, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. 
Verily, verily, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Don't let everybody know you're fasting. So that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so Jesus himself, he endorsed fasting as a legitimate spiritual expression in the life of a Christian. And he opened his instruction concerning fasting by not uh, declaring, now if you fast, but he declares it even stronger than that, and instructing us as his children, he said, and when you fast, at the very least, Jesus has very, very commendable comments concerning fasting. And those commendable comments should cause every single Christian, I think, to be open to the Holy Spirit as he would lead us related to this. Certainly, it should never, ever enter into our minds as Christians to view fasting as something extreme or something extraordinary or something fanatical uh, or something that is legalistic in any kind of way or even worse to view it as something that's unnecessary for us today. Now, when God instructs the children of Judah in Isaiah chapter 58 here concerning uh, their fasting, the context of it is this. In verse 3, the first part of that verse, you notice that they complain to God, and their complaint to God is, we're praying and we're fasting, but our fasting isn't doing any good. You're not answering our prayers, our fasting is fruitless, and so it's not bearing any kind of results, and so what's up, God? You're failing here. You tell us to fast, we're fasting, and you're not doing anything here. And God responds to them at the latter part of verse 3, all the way through verse 7, and he lets them know that their fasting was unfruitful, first of all, because of their hypocrisy and because they were living lives that, as a nation virtually, they were living lives in deliberate disobedience to God's Word. And so God was, in essence, telling them, it is useless to fast if my life is marked by hypocrisy or by disobedience. And then he said their fasting was uh, ineffective because of their mistreatment of others. And he was telling them, in essence, it is useless for you to fast. Ask for me to bestow some kind of a grace upon you and it, it, when you are not willing to extend grace upon uh, some other person. You're deliberately mistreating other people. And so God says, that's the reason for the ineffectiveness of your fasting. But in his rebuke of the Jews in Judah and his call upon them to repent, then in beginning in verse 8, God revealed to them some of the circumstances in our lives that can warrant fasting. So he calls on them to repent of their sin. He calls upon them to repent of their mistreatment of other people, which is grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so now he begins to talk to those who are saying, all right, I'm willing to do this. We want to uh, 
our fasting to be effective. And he begins to give them instruction concerning, all right, here are the circumstances where fasting is important, fasting would be fruitful and, and necessary. And I think sometimes when we talk about fasting, some of us might wonder, well, what kind of a circumstance in life would warrant fasting? What kind of a situation in my life would, I, would make me stop and consider this is a situation that I ought to fast uh, related to? And, of course, that's a great question. And that's the very question that God uh, answers here. And he gives us some examples of situations that can occur in our lives as Christians, do occur in our lives as Christians, and it's a time to consider giving some amount of time to fasting related to it. You notice in verse 8, the Lord said, Then your light shall break forth like the morning. And here is talking about the light breaking forth at the dawn. The light of the morning comes after a long, dark night, and that light brings then a new day. And so when we've been in a season, we say, when, when's a good time to fast? Well, when we've been in a long season of darkness or difficulty in life, or we're in a season that's been dark and it's been difficult and we feel like, I need a fresh start. I need a fresh start emotionally, mentally. I need a fresh start spiritually. I've been in this season for so long. I want to break from this and I want to break into the light. I want a fresh start with God. And that's what these Jews needed in Judah. They're spiritually blind and they're spiritually disobedient. And they wake up one day and they realize we've been living in spiritual darkness. We need a fresh start spiritually. This is the kind of thing that somebody might do where they realize one day I've drifted far from God. I'm living a life of compromise. I'm living a life of disobedience to God. And, I, and I'm a backslider or whatever it might be. And to realize I want to come back to God and I've been in this place. I want a fresh start with God and then to fast in order to bring that uh, fresh start. Sometimes it can be a fresh start in some circumstance or relationship in our life that we need. Sometimes relationships have dark seasons to them. And they're dark and they're difficult and they're hard. And we realize, I've got to have a restart in this relationship. I've got to, well, I want a, a fresh start in this relationship. And I want God to produce that in this situation. And how often that can happen in a marriage or in a parent-child relationship. Or we become estranged from a friend. Or some division occurs between us and another co-laborer within the gospel. Now there's a strain. There's a division here. It's not light. It's not life. It's not beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's dark. And so I'm going to give myself to fasting for a day and seeking God that He would bring light into that relationship. I'll tell you, it would be very, very sad, I think, for a marriage to end or for a parent-child relationship to uh, become estranged and remain estranged, or some split to occur within a church, or some division to occur between co-labors for Christ within a church without some consideration being given on somebody's part concerning the need to at least spend some time fasting for a breakthrough in that situation. A second cause for fasting he gives us in verse 8 
when he declares, your healing shall spring forth speedily. God says fast, and fast out of an obedient life and out of a life that loves and cares for other people. And this is what fasting will produce. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. So fasting is appropriate when we're in need of a physical healing of some kind in our body. Now, you may be in such a place where your need for physical healing is such that you can't fast in order to accomplish that or just fast for a meal. God recognizes that. So we're in need of physical healing in our bodies or someone within our family or another person that we care about and we love. And we say, I'm going to fast for a day and seek God for healing in their life. It's a great reason and a cause for fasting. The third thing that he lists here in verse 8, your righteousness shall go before you. In other words, fasting is a good idea when our reputation is being attacked, unfairly attacked by other people, when we're being slandered, when people are gossiping about us or they're spreading lies about us and other people are then believing those lies. And so calling upon the Lord to protect our reputations and to bring forth our righteousness and to bring out the truth in this given situation. I think most of us have experienced that kind of thing. God bless you. I hope that was a sneeze and you're all right. So, oh, we've, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. We've got um, one of our sisters here in the fellowship has a, gets seizures and so she's having a seizure right now, being tended to very well right now. So, Don't worry about her. But back to what we're discussing here. I think that most of us have experienced this kind of thing in our lives at one time or another. And we say, what can I do to stop this thing where my reputation is unfairly being abused in this way? And it's a wonderful reason for fasting. The fourth reason he gives in verse 8, he describes in this way, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And so fasting is good when we're in a special need of God's protection in our lives. We're being threatened uh, uh, by other people. Other people are being hostile toward us. And fasting is a good thing to engage in um, at a season where that is happening. So we see as God's laying these things out how common the situations are in life that warrant fasting. And we realize, wow, I've never fasted in my Christian life. And I realize this is something that is um, God's laying out all kinds of situations that are my uh, daily or weekly or monthly experience. I think that when he talks here about the Lord, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Sometimes fasting is uh, good when somebody attacks us from the rear. Maybe we're being attacked related to something from our past. And the devil's notorious for this, for bringing up our past and throwing it on our face. And sometimes other people do that. I was thinking about uh, Daryl Mansfield this last week a little bit. And uh, Daryl Mansfield, when he would come and do concerts years ago at the church, 
And um, he had a sticker, the bumper sticker that he would sell. And it said, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And so I thought it was always pretty clever. But the devil will do that. He'll come and he'll begin this great warfare of condemnation over some sin in our past. And sometimes it can become extraordinarily strong. And uh, some of us can be more vulnerable to that than others. And fasting can be used to break that. In verse 9 he said, When you call, uh, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. In other words, fasting is a wonderful thing to do concerning any need that I have in my life, any uh, special answer to prayer that I'm needing. Something's happening that's urgent in my life. Something that is happening that is particularly important in my life to then couple a fast with that prayer. Verse 10. Then you shall, uh, then your light shall dawn in the darkness. And so here we see that fasting is good in order to break out of some kind of darkness, some kind of spiritual warfare, some kind of adversity, or some kind of a particular trial. Again, I think that this is most important concerning an extended period of spiritual warfare that is going on, extraordinarily strong, and it uh, wouldn't be inappropriate at all to fast uh, when we're engaged in that kind of a spiritual warfare, and it's not only being waged against us individually, but to fast on behalf of a husband or a wife or another family member or a, a son or a daughter or a grandchild or a friend or a church or a fellow minister in the things of the Lord uh, to pray to uh, fast for the lost in this regard uh, as well. Jesus declared that both prayer and fasting are required in some cases for the casting out of certain demons he caught taught his disciples that prayer wasn't enough. It needed to be coupled with fasting. And so it's interesting the importance that it plays in uh, a break related to spiritual warfare. He says again in verse 10, then your darkness shall be as noonday. And so this is a time where we would pray to God and we would fast in that prayer and, and seek the Lord for a return of joy in our lives. You ever lost your joy? Or to pray for peace to be restored to our lives or for hope to be restored to our lives. So in the middle of a great difficult trial, I've lost my joy. I've lost my peace. I've lost my hope. Lord, I'm going to fast now and ask you to restore that to me. And uh, the Lord promises to hear that uh, prayer in an extraordinary way coupled with the, um, uh, the fasting. Verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually. And so here is fasting when we're needing God's guidance. We need His wisdom. We need His revelation. We need His direction concerning some great decision within our lives. And I think that uh, we can think even in our own lives, not to be condemning, but 
to have Christians well, uh, so often, uh, you know, move from one community to another community or to change a church or uh, to uh, leave and become a, you know, a pastor someplace else or to become a missionary in some other part of the world or uh, to make job changes just kind of willy-nilly or uh, without any prayer or without any kind of fasting. These major decisions that uh, happen in our lives where we really desperately need to hear God and receive His wisdom, and fasting is invaluable in that regard. He says in verse 11, the Lord will satisfy your soul in drought. And so fasting for spiritual refreshment during those seasons when we feel spiritually dry. And sometimes it's just like that. And we can be going through um, a long season of spiritual dryness. Yes, I'm reading my Bible on a daily basis and I'm praying and I'm I'm doing everything that I've always done in my Christian life where, you know, there's no dryness. Everything is just like an overflow and it's great and it's effortless and nothing has changed. But now I'm in this season of of great dryness and to then uh, to fast and to seek the Lord for a break from that spiritual dryness. I remember listening to uh, Pastor Raul Reese uh, Calvary Chapel in Southern California. I have immense respect for Pastor Raw. And I remember years ago hearing him speak, and I forget whether it was at a pastor's conference or I was just listening to a teaching by him with his congregation. But he, he began to talk about a season of dryness in his life, spiritual dryness, that went on for a year. And he was early in, in the pastorate, and he said, for a year I didn't feel God. And sometimes that can happen just because God is teaching us faith so that we learn not to walk by sight but to walk by faith. But as he, he talked about that season of a year, imagine a whole year not feeling God, not feeling like you're hearing His voice and your prayers are going nowhere and you're a pastor. I mean, that's a pretty intense place to be in that kind of an experience. And he was now years separated from that. And yet, as he began to think about it and began to uh, speak about it, he just began to cry in the pulpit. And that's a, it's a hard place to be in a place of spiritual dryness. And we can't understand and we can't figure it out. And God speaks here and says those kind of seasons where we feel spiritually dry, it's a good time to fast and to seek God for a breakthrough doesn't mean that there'll be a breakthrough because if it's not about if it's about teaching us something that will only be taught that way then it will continue but we'll receive God's strength as we'll see in a moment or some other grace from God as a result of the fasting but nothing wrong with approaching God and saying I'm in this place I've been here a long time and I need a breakthrough Lord and I'm going to seek you not only in prayer but in fasting. Notice in verse 11, the Lord will strengthen your bones. And so that's fasting where we are in something in our life where we need extra strength. We need uh, extra physical strength and we need extra spiritual power. And there are those seasons that we go into in life where we go, wow, this is going to be hard. Um, I've committed to this and this is coming up and these changes are being made in the company or this is happening within our family and we realize I'm heading into a place where I need 
extraordinary spiritual strength and physical strength and to fast for a day and to ask the Lord for that. Notice in verse 11, he says, you shall be like a watered garden. And so here is fasting for uh, when we sense a need for personal spiritual refreshment. We would call this revival. God, I'm just, I'm going through the motions. I love you. I'm not I'm not not feeling anything, but I'm not where I was. I, I need a revival. I need that kind of a work of your spirit in my life and to fast and then to ask God for that. And sometimes uh, we can fast where maybe we've got a personal revival going on in our lives, but we sense a need to pray for one of our children in this regard or one of our grandchildren or a friend in this uh, this regard, to pray for a church in this regard or somebody we know that's serving the Lord and we feel like they've kind of lost their edge and I love them and I care about them and I want them to be successful and so I'm going to fast for that kind of a breakthrough in their life that they'll be like a watered garden. In verse 11, you shall be like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And here's the desire on the part of someone to be a spiritual refreshment to others. Yes, I want to be refreshed uh, by God. I want that sense of revival, but I want, uh, I want my life to be an, uh, an, a revival kind of influence in other people's lives. And I want to bless them in that way. I want to bring that kind of spiritual refreshment into others' lives. And a person can wake up one day and realize that's not happening in my life anymore. And I want that to happen in my life again. I've lost that a torrent of living water coming out of my innermost being. And uh, I'm not impacting the environments that I'm in uh, for the Lord. And, and, uh, and then to ask for that to happen once again in, uh, in, in fasting. He said in verse 12, you shall build the old waste places. So here is fasting in order for God to restore what has been destroyed or fallen into ruins in our life for one reason or another. So a marriage has been destroyed or gone into a ruined place, a family, a relationship, uh, a church split or a church that's badly divided, uh, a business that was once operating for God's glory has now gone into uh, ruin. And it's a place to stop and to begin to pray and, and to ask the Lord to restore this. And the Lord, He calls on us Himself. This is one of the great passages on fasting in the entire Bible. And He's priming the pump. He's giving us ideas. Don't let these things just come and go. Think about fasting related to these situations. And, and we're going to see in a moment, he encourages us to do this because he has every intention of blessing us as we do. He then says in verse 12, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And here we have fasting for a, a concern for our ministries, our Christian service, the desire that our work for the Lord and our service to the Lord will outlive our lives and live on into the coming generations. And it doesn't have to be a, um, a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist for that to happen. Um, there's a, a, a brother that Karen and I knew uh, back at the Calvary Chapel in Napa, California years ago. 
and a very, very sweet man, and he got mesophilioma, and he's now with the Lord and all, and he worked at Mare Island, and he drove a bus from uh, Sears Point, the speedway out there, I don't know what it's named now, with people back and forth, and he drove bus in another capacity and everything. When they had his memorial service, the church couldn't hold the number of people. I've been to services for people that it, in prominent positions like the one that I have that didn't fill a room like that. And here was a man who lived his life with a desire that when I die, my influence will move, go on into the next generation. And we can wake up as Christians and say, listen, I'm not, I, I'm not confident that my influence is going to outlive my life, that it's going to impact the generation immediately following me and the generation after. And so I want that to happen. And so to ask the Lord and and to couple the prayer with fasting for, Lord, give me that kind of an influence within my family, at my school, in my workplace, and in the neighborhood in which I live. He said further, In verse 12, you shall be called the repair of the breach, the restore of streets to dwell in. And here is fasting in order to be an influence uh, for God as good citizens in whatever nation we uh, live in. And to fast and to pray for those who are, are Christians in public service. Fasting for those Christians God has called to serve in some capacity uh, in government. Not everybody can do that. I mean, the politics of government, the nuances of it, the layers and layers, and God puts his people within all of these kind of things, and, and he does so for his reasons. It's not an easy environment uh, to be in. There's so much need within the cities and within the states and within the nations, and so... Uh, fasting, uh, if you find yourself as a Christian called to that kind of an environment, to be influential in that environment, you may find times where you need to fast for extra something in order to, uh, to stand in there. And then for others of us to fast as Christians for those Christians that are called into that kind of a position. I think about Cindy Marks in uh, her position on the Modesto City School Board. And there are many other Christians who are in high levels of government and influence within our community. And to say, boy, you know, the Lord has put Cindy on my heart. And I don't know why, but it's, it's, this is more than interceding for her. I think this Wednesday I'm going to fast. Or when the next board meeting is going to be, I'm going to fast for her on that day for a special anointing upon her life and a special gift of wisdom. I think that as we've gone through this list and we see how practical it is, um, I think when I read this passage, I'm amazed that God would supply us in our desire to um, uh, experience the fullness of the Christian life that he has for us, including this uh, fasting, that he'd give us this amazing list of all of the various reasons to fast in order to prime the pump in our lives and, and, and how fasting can be uh, effective in that kind of a way. And I think that all of us, as we've listened here, any of us who 
know the Lord and walk with the Lord in any kind of way, we realize, wow, this is not some, you know, once every 20 year kind of thing that I ought to give consideration to. This is the nitty gritty of my family, the nitty gritty of my service to the Lord, the nitty gritty of my neighborhood and my workplace and the school that I go to. And uh, that's exactly how God wants us uh, to view it. Well, someone can sit and listen to all of this and say, well, that's just a, a, a perfect waste of time. Well, um, if, if you would be in that kind of a category, and I would just ask that you take what's been said today, the beauty of Isaiah chapter 59, and just fold it up and put it in your back pocket and just save it for a rainy day because a rainy day is coming. And to hold on to it, and then when that day hits, and you realize, I don't know how I'm going to get through this unless I not only pray, but I seek the Lord by adding fasting to that. And then now you'll have this instruction in, uh, in your life and as a part of something that you can then put into practice. I suspect that before all is said and done in this world, uh, before Jesus returns for us, that all Christians in the world, including Christians in the United States of America, as protected as we might feel that we've been from fasting and Christian disciplines like this because of our Christian heritage, I suspect that things, as I read my Bible, are going to come to a place where we're going to find ourselves, each and every one of us as Christians, needing to practice the entirety of the Christian life that is described in the Bible and not merely the one that is modeled by our culture that emphasizes certain things and de-emphasizes other things. And I think that within the body of Christ in the United States of America that fasting is going to continue to grow and increase in terms of its practice within our lives as we find ourselves in a place where we're sensing the necessity of it more than ever. And so may the Lord use this passage just to guide us then, having primed the pump and made us aware of how much in the daily of our life this kind of thing can fit in and be effective. And may the Holy Spirit direct us related to this important area in the coming days and coming weeks and months. And the Lord will do it, and He will lead us, and He will bless our fasting. You say, you know, what's the difference between just praying for something and adding fasting to it? I mean, isn't prayer enough? Listen, I don't know the, all the what's and the wherefores and the whys and the hows and the, all of that stuff. I don't know where one starts and one lets off. I don't know why God answers here and that and His timing and all of those things. All I know is God tells us to pray. And all I know is that Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. But I want to close our sermon here this morning by emphasizing once again the wonderful promise that Jesus gives to us, to you, to you personally as one of His children and to me related to the fasting. Here's His promise. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Verily, verily, I say to you that they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face 
so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And then here's the promise. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He always notices it, and he always blesses it. What is on the other side of beginning to practice this in our Christian life? Only God knows. When I was growing up, they had a commercial on TV. Try it. You might like it. You know, I even forget what the product was. This is kind of the idea here. Try it. You might like it. Try an afternoon fast. Try a lunch fast. Try a one-day fast related to some crisis that's going on in your life right now, some need, some breakthrough, some crisis that's going on in the life of someone that you love. And then it's up to the Lord to confirm his word with accompanying signs and wonders. And so he will. If you sit here this morning, you're not a Christian yet, or you're backslidden and you've been a long way out, time out of church and you say, great, I came to a church first time in years and he taught on fasting. You can still get saved. You can still get saved. You can still rededicate your life to the Lord. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to pray with you to put your faith in Christ and begin a personal relationship with God today as you receive the forgiveness of your sins. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer now. Lord, we just kind of lift our hand up as your sons and your daughters to our Heavenly Father. And we ask that you would take us by the hand and that you would continue to lead us into the fullness of the Christian life that's described in the Bible for your glory and for our good, Lord, and for the good of the people that we know and we love and we care about all around our lives, everywhere we are. And so, Lord, as we take these steps in the coming days and weeks and months, steps that some of us have never taken related to fasting, I ask that you would confirm your word today with accompanying signs and wonders in each of our lives. And we ask it and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.